Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, I've got a great guest, Tim Swanson, uh, part of the R3 Consortium. Tim, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for, thanks for having me here, Rich. Yeah. W- would you mind giving the listeners a brief intro, and then we'll get into what R3 does and, you know, and your work with them? Sure. So uh, my uh, position actually is a director of market research. I'm based in the Bay Area. I'm actually, uh, it, it, this is a current time, the only guy on the West Coast for our, our team, primarily because all of our customers are uh, basically New York, London, uh, Singapore, and a few other cities. And um, we, our, our major customer out here is, is Wells Fargo. Uh, and actually, they're an investor too, which could lead into, I could explain how this consortium actually works. But my role within the company, uh, I wear a couple of hats, but the, the primary one is um, I speak to a lot of different companies, big and small startups primarily, uh, to see who we could potentially partner with. Spoken to about 450 or so different companies in the last year and a half. Now, I'm not a VC or anything like that, but I do provide a kind of a filtering mechanism for those uh, types of companies that want to uh, look and in, in, in act, uh, be active within our consortia in terms of projects. Um, and uh, I got into this role completely by accident. So <laughs> in case you want to know, there is no blueprint to, to, to doing what I ended up doing. I just completely fell into this position by, uh, by total happenstance. Okay. So What's the goal of uh, the R3 consortium? How are they going to be using blockchain, and what are some of the use cases you see? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So just to be clear to the audience, the word blockchain or distributed ledger is extremely vague and nebulous and used by all sorts of different groups to mean a million different things. Uh, at some different fintech events, people will use the word blockchain to mean everything under the sun for solving every type of potential problem. So it, it's kind of unfortunate that the words become um, battered and, and doesn't mean uh, a whole lot uh, beyond just something magical. But for the purposes of this call in this interview, uh, I will define a blockchain or distributed ledger as a uh, basically a cryptographically secured, tamper-resistant, or at least tamper-evident data structure that's stored in a cloud. And that actually encompasses uh, basically the, the wide world of both cryptocurrencies and the enterprise side of things, quote-unquote uh, bank blockchains, if you will. Um, R3, the company, the company I work for, um, actually isn't actually even building a blockchain per se. It's building a distributed ledger. Uh, a blockchain is an instantation of one instantation of a of a distributed ledger. Um, and we could go into the nitty gritty details later on. But at, at a high level, the idea is is taking the ideas that were actually have been around for several decades and were actually assembled first in, in Bitcoin and then Ethereum and a variety of other cryptocurrency platforms and, and, and gave us a visual aid, an illustration of how these different tools could be used. And then uh, basically a, a variety of different vendors and, and companies have sussed those out and, and, and divided those into their own little world uh, for, for enterprises and institutions. And, and we are okay. basically reapplying some of these techniques um, and, and, and tools for regulated financial institutions and capital markets specifically. Uh, so if, if you look at our consortia, uh, we have roughly 80 or so members. Um, we started, we, we launched September 2015, 
And uh, about a week and a half ago, we announced our, our closing of our funding, raised over $100 million to, to build out some financial market infrastructure for these participants. And the, the end goal is to effectively uh, replace uh, many of the reconciliation processes that bedevil the, the financial industry. For those who are listening and not familiar with, say, the back offices of financial institutions, it's totally okay. It's something that nobody on the right mind would want to have to you know, spend any time on. You just assume it works. Well, it, it works today because you have uh, tens of billions of dollars spent on the post-trade processes of, of reconciling uh, accounts. I know that sounds really boring and mundane and oh, wh- why does it cost so much? It's because there is no such thing as a shared ledger infrastructure. There's, there's no way for um, institutions to know exactly, precisely what the uh, accounts are necessarily within the, uh, the the corresponding accounts within these other institutions that they they already trade with or um, have relationships with. So, uh, and it, just to give you a number for for the listeners to understand, there's a roughly sixty billion dollars or so spent annually on this post trade world of settlement and clearing these these the, the I don't want to say all reconciliation processes, but uh, you have fundamentally uh, the movement and settlement of these assets. Uh, billions of dollars are spent making sure these things are secure because if you don't, <laughs> then you end up screwing up an entire property system globally. And uh, if there's one thing that people that own property don't like, it's to have, have these things uh, not work. Yeah, and I don't mean that in, in the sense of a large landowner. I mean anyone with property. Um, they want to make sure that these things are, are settled uh, definitively. So well, long story short, yeah, we're, we're building uh, some technology, hope to deploy it within enterprises and looking for partners. So uh, if there's anyone listening to this, it's built some applications for financial institutions and have an application that's that's going live or wanting to go live, feel free to reach out to me. Happy to chat with them and explain a little bit more and see how we could explore partnerships. Yeah, it's, you know, because I, I didn't, I talked to a company called Epifite and some other companies that told me, I didn't even know what corresponding bank, correspondent banking was. I didn't know that banks have accounts with each other. And for instance, if you're sending a wire overseas that it may make, you know, two, three, four, five, six hops through different banks and banks have accounts with each other. It's funny, I guess you just, you know, the common man doesn't think about it. And you just assume banks are big institutions. They all trust each other. There's no issues and everything works smoothly. But I guess you're saying if, if they're spending 60 billion a year and making sure all kinds of trades settle, I guess, stocks, equities, wires, remittances, et cetera. Um, it is a big deal. And there, there is a, a lack of, um, like you said, a ledger, a shared ledger between all of them. So can you talk about some of the common um, trades, as you call them, that do get settled and maybe talk about some of the steps because I just want the listeners to have an appreciation of what banking actually is like. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, um, I'm going to just uh, take a quick step back and, and mention a, a few different things. So just for the listeners who don't have a background in finance, that's that's totally fine. I actually am one of the few people on our team who doesn't have a background in finance. So I've had to learn the very hard way all the different acronyms and what they do and, and sit there and act like a stupid idiot by raising my hand. So it's totally okay um, to, <laughs> to not understand this. And so I'll just take a quick step back for, for everybody on, on, on two general ideas. When you have cash in your bank and you want to move it from, say, your bank to any other bank that uh, basically receives U.S. dollars, all that money effectively is routed through and cleared through the U.S. Federal Reserve system in some form or fashion. So we have a central bank that runs a 
uh, or, or an RTGS, a real-time growth settlement system. Uh, I'm not saying it necessarily would be routed through that, but at the end of the day, you have mechanisms like ACH that, that move money uh, across the interspersed networks. There's not even one network. When we talk about um, the financial system, it's actually fairly decentralized and siloed off. So, and, and it wasn't designed uh, on purpose to be that way. This is the way the last 30, 40 years of all these different networks coming online from, from different uh, parts of the world and different parts of the country. Um, so you have cash that you, you mentioned earlier. We talked about remittances. So that's moving money across borders to other countries. Um, and then you also have, for example, securities, the, the, the area that, that you and I almost certainly have never heard of are, are these things called uh, CSD, Central Security Depositories. And each country effectively has at least one, or at least most uh, developed countries have one or, or more. Um, and they, in the U.S., there's one called the DTCC. Um, there's actually others that, that provide these custody services. And what they do is they basically, they're the ones who actually hold the securities. So when you say you own Apple, a share of Apple, you personally don't actually have that share. Even your broker doesn't have it. What you do is you have a claim on that share uh, held in custody by these CSDs. And so when you when you want to buy you know, some kind of equity over overseas, you know, something listed on a different stock market, uh, the settlement process that, 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 that takes place between – it isn't just you saying, hey, DTCC, let me have my stock. It's, they actually have to go through – there, uh, this this large reconciliation process of going to other CSDs and in, in getting title for that. So it's a long, very cumbersome process. It, it works though. That's the amazing part is the fact that you have <laughs> you have the ability, uh, at least here in the U.S., to be able to buy uh, if you, if you have good credit to be able to buy um, equities in other in other markets and actually have legal title to that. It might take some days, it might take some extra money, maybe some fees, stuff like that, but ultimately it works. So the question is, is for, for large financial institutions that are not only uh, uh, not seeing revenue uh, increase, but uh, if, you, if you've actually looked since 2011, I believe, um, you, you've had a um, continual increase in costs, operating costs, regulatory costs, but not a similar, uh, at least a, a proportional uh, increase in revenue. So the financial institutions as a whole will spend a billion dollars to save $2 billion. So if if, you're, if if you have this back office that's costing you hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year to if you're at least a large investment bank, um, you're willing to spend extra money to to reduce those costs. And so as a result, banks uh, historically in the last ten years or so have been some of the largest uh, acquirers of technology. In fact, they spend more on technology right. than just about any other vertical. So it's actually it's it's no coincidence that they're also the as a as a economic vertical, the largest investors in this type of technology, because they feel that uh, based on their, their study so far, that they could actually save not only money, but provide extra transparency and reduce, the, for example, regulatory burden. And I'll give you one example for the listeners. Um, one of our members spends about $900 million a year on regulatory reporting, uh, this entire infrastructure wow. that they've built up. And there's no competitive advantage for them to maintain and operate that infrastructure versus their peers. Like they don't, they don't get an edge edgewise. So why don't they just neutralize and standardize, for example, on these, these different reg reporting requirements? Now, I'm not saying you could use a distributed ledger to remove, you know, $900 million across for them, but you could remove it significantly because you'll have, for example, a golden source of truth. You'll be able to use effectively these, these ideas around uh, of a blockchain. Again, I don't want to go into the too many details here for, for, the, for the listeners. Again, there's lots of videos and papers about that. But the idea is, how, how can you share this one source of golden truth that, that everyone can rely on for being uh, completely accurate? 
And if you can move that within not just your own organization, but with, through externally through, uh, through the market, uh, through other firms, then you don't necessarily need to maintain a separate infrastructure for that. So that's the, the grand ideal you know, nirvana state where everyone has a shared, a shared record of shared truth on a shared ledger. And it's going to take a, a number of years, if not decades, to, to fully build that out, uh, assuming, assuming it can be built out. So that's, a, that's kind of our, our goal and our task. Do, do banks and large institutions want a shared ledger? Because it seems like there would be a, uh, a transparency requirement for that, and perhaps they don't want that. You know, I know they want to save costs, and they have tremendous costs. It sounds like dealing with regulation and back office processes, but is there all, you know, what, what, is, what do they fear about this process? What's the, the hesitation instead of jump in, whole hog, let's do it? Sure. So a couple of answers to that. Number one, the, the technology out there is still fairly immature. So even, even if they wanted to, like, say, invest billions of dollars into it, there's just no, uh, there's no company. Every company out there is roughly less than uh, 200 people by headcount that's building this type of technology. So very young um, technology that still has to be built out. Uh, there's nothing really in production for anyone to just take that technology and then uh, replicate it across the entire market. Uh, everyone's still doing uh, proofs of concepts and, and pilots. I wouldn't say that necessarily anyone's fearful, though. Um, in fact, um, a lot of them again see the the, the long term promises, hence you know the investments uh, in, in companies like ourselves. But the uh, the challenge you 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 raise is, is extremely important related to privacy, uh, because just like the health industry, uh, financial industry is heavily regulated in terms of who can see and who cannot see, who can access, who can touch, who can hold custody of information. So, in fact, uh, the listeners may be interested in seeing just uh, the challenges the cloud world has had. Um, if, if you look at um, each country uh, has been negotiating or trying to negotiate different data-related treaties around data custody, data sovereignty, um, and you still have you know lawsuits between, say, Microsoft and the U.S. government or Google and the U.S. government related to emails and who has access to it through yeah. subpoenas. Um, blockchains or distributed ledgers, they're cloud-based. So any of the challenges, well, not any, but many of the challenges that um, cloud uh, providers have uh, are, could also dovetail into the same challenges that we'll have to you know, uh, hurdle over. Uh, otherwise, it may not be used. You might have to have a bunch of on-premise solutions. And, and maybe that's the way this works for you know, the interim uh, instead of uh, moving stuff onto an actual cloud. But uh, solving for privacy is, is going to be extremely important because if not, number one, banks won't use it, and so therefore you don't generate revenue. But <laughs> number two, uh, the regulators will, will 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 not be okay with it too, and they actually could benefit from from some of the stuff because they could have uh, much closer uh, optics into, say, for example, the actual money supply uh, or when trades actually occur versus receiving stuff, say, 30 days later or something like that. So uh, there's a lot of benefits uh, for for all these different players, but solving for privacy is uh, is extremely important, especially since. Uh, a lot of the original, say, blockchain systems based off of Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or forks thereof, uh, th- th- those networks were designed for, for different purposes to, to effectively replicate everything to everybody because they were trying to be you know, censorship resistant, difficult to shut down. Uh, have contractual laws and you know, there's already the ability for, for judges to issue subpoenas or uh, have, have courts to reverse transactions or something like that. Um, you, you need to be able to build in uh, the ability to... Uh, to handle disputes and in, in, in the resolutions thereof on these networks. And, and, and that also involves uh, how, how do you handle uh, the replication of data? 
So a system like that we built, instead of forking something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, we had to start from scratch and basically build something in which only the participants in a trade um, are able to actually see the the actual information, as well as maybe a regulator. Um, so instead of replicating all your trading history to your competitors, like something, if you, if you fork Bitcoin, for example, you'd be having a gossip network in which everyone inside the auditorium is being told all your trades, <laughs> including your competitors and, and anyone that, that was in that room. Um, whereas if, if you wanted to build something fit for purpose for financial institutions, the only people who would receive something are, for example, you, you don't, you'd be passing notes, you know, from, from one, you know, Alice to Bob, you know, that, that's it, that nobody else would be receiving that note except for maybe uh, a regulator having access to it. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of challenges and we spent the last year and a half or so having to not only identify those, but try to figure ways to, to solve for them. Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> what is the most, the juiciest or the most exciting implementation that banks want to see? And how about uh, other financial institutions, uh, brokerages? Well, yeah, uh, some really good questions there <laughs> in terms of what is that, that use case. And to be frank, you know, each financial institution, whether it's a bank or an insurance company or credit card company, whatever it might be, uh, has their own you know, wheelhouse of things that they want to have you know, identified and, and solved for. Uh, it could be things as simple as, say, a KYC standard. So right now, um, a lot of banks have a minimum fee in order to open an account, right? You need to have a, sorry, a minimum balance in order to open an account. And uh, a lot of that comes to the fact that uh, to do the KYC processing of, of doing background checks and stuff like that to check to make sure you're uh, a good, good Samaritan or a good citizen or whatever it might be, um, costs the money. So, but if you already have a bank account, say I, I uh, say you have a bank account at say Bank of America, and somebody else has one at Citi. If you wanted to move your account uh, to to your wife's account or something like that, you have to go through the whole KYC process all over again. But if you if you have a standardized um, KYC uh, utility uh, between institutions, then it's much easier for you and your your wife, for example, to to move over because you've already had. Um, you know, years of, of, of credit history being built up or, or loan history, whatever it might be, um, you, you'd be able to standardize around certain parameters and, and move that over. And I know that sounds very simple. Like, why hasn't that been done? Well, a lot of people have tried. Um, the, uh, the graveyard of, of different standards bodies is deep and wide, and it just takes time. There's, there's a lot of coordination problems. In fact, some of these, uh, especially on the, the identity front, the digital identity front, is really a, a UN-level problem. So whenever I see you know, startups in the Bay Area saying, yeah, we're going to solve for digital identity. And I just kind of shake my head. I'm not, I'm certainly not an identity expert, but having, having heard these pitches for a good year and a half about how people are going to do that, you, you learn very quickly about why it hasn't been solved for, for before. So uh, going back to, to use cases that people are excited about, so you, it's pretty easy to find, you know, you and I probably could brainstorm up a, a number of use cases. Uh, even the listeners, we all could come up with ideas, but it's, it's, it's one thing to, 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 it's very easy to come up with ideas. It's several orders of magnitude, difficult, more difficult to, to build and implement uh, and integrate those into existing systems. Because uh, at the end of the day, uh, these, these, whenever you hear saying, oh, we're going to replace you know, these reconciliation systems, and you're like, okay, which one are you going to replace? Like, what actual computer are you going to turn off? Some of these computers and some of these uh, data centers that, that banks use are, are reused for multiple purposes. Now, it'd be great if you could just identify one system and just replace it and, and in an ideal world, turn turn on a, a new infrastructure and all in one one fell swoop but it probably won't be that easy especially seeing how uh, integrated uh, and intertwined many of these um, types of networks have become 
So as far as use cases, uh, I, I think that the, 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 the low lift ones that don't require, say, <clears throat> an actual cash being issued on a ledger, I'll give a quick example. Um, right now, if you wanted to use a distributed ledger from one of these large uh, or one of these uh, vendors trying to build something for enterprises, right now there is no central bank digital currency. So you couldn't actually have settlement take place for um, an equity settlement, for example, because there's no actual delivery versus payment. There's no payment on that taking place. Um, so you, you would need to wait until a central bank actually um, issued that in order to have that specific use case unlocked. It, it, until then, you could do a couple of things. Number one, you could try to come up with a, a stopgap solution. Maybe you have a number of the banks act, uh, create a special purpose vehicle to act as a central bank uh, digital currency, um, or you need to work on other use cases that, that don't need that. So, for example, things in trade finance, um, there's a variety of startups that have not only tried to, to help out with the digital transformation of, of, of all these different channels. Uh, for those of you who are <clears throat> not familiar with trade finance, shame on you. You should definitely know this. No, I'm kidding. Um, tra- <laughs> tra- trade finance is just a, a gigantic umbrella term for all these things that take place between uh, like bill of lading, letter of credit, uh, an entire uh, trade infrastructure that's go- gone on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but really hasn't become updated. For example, when, when, you, when, a, when a, uh, a big ship like Maersk docks in a new port, um, the captain will receive usually overnight a FedEx uh, package uh, with the actual title or pieces of legal agreement in in the FedEx envelope. So even though they went across the ocean, they did that. They still can't actually take claim, or the the, uh, the new owners of say the cargo on the on, on the on the ship still can't take claim of of the the materials until they actually have these this old you know uh, 20th century paper, as it were. <laughs> uh, the the, the mm-hmm. fact is, it's it's still very uh, manual intensive. Uh, so when people talk about using distributed ledgers for trade finance, they're actually usually talking about two things at one time. They're talking about digitizing the processes. Um, there's already several different vendors out there that are doing e-documentation and have been trying to do that for years. But the idea is, is well, if, once you have this digitized, then you could move, uh, for example, the, the different titles um, uh, and track the provenance thereof across the sea. So you could go from, say, mining ore. Uh, along the entire supply chain of, of the ore, how it's refined, how it's moved through <clears throat> warehouses and to manufactured goods to the end user. So there's, for example, there's a startup out here uh, in the Bay Area called Ripe, R-I-P-E.io, and they're trying to be the quote-unquote blockchain for food. And what they do is they're working with farms to identify, and, and they, they, a lot of farms have already built out IoT or Internet of Thing infrastructure with RFID tags and stuff like that. And the idea is, is how can you trace the provenance of food from one farm to a supermarket to say a uh, actual uh, restaurant and know you and be able to tr- uh, have a, a record of truth, this cryptographic provenance, since everyone's using signing uh, sign- digital signatures, you could, you know, who signed what, when. Um, and so if there's a problem, you could easily identify, you could, I shouldn't say easily, you could more easily identify. There still could be uh, changes. People would still try to, you know, swap stuff out. <clears throat> but the idea is you could hold people responsible. And this would be very useful in areas, say, pharmaceutical industry in China. I, I lived in China for five years. And without without a doubt, yeah. every month or two, you have uh, different uh, scandals. People, people uh, doctors prescribing fake medicine because, they, well, number one, they might not know. But number two, because the manufacturers had replaced uh, the real pills with like sugar pills or something like that. And somebody died because they didn't get the real medicine or something. So um, I'm not saying that blockchains will solve everything. In fact, it's really disappointing going to events and hearing people say, oh, this will change the world in ways in which, you know, we will, your, your kids will never see, 
you know, hunger again. It's not one of those kinds of things. There, there's, <laughs> there, there's some really cool tools and applications for this, but it's going to take time um, and it's going to take a lot of creativity to come up with, with actual solutions using this type of technology, uh, including all the way, like I said, from, from finance to, uh, to supply chains, trade finance, and people have even uh, tried to apply it for, for healthcare um, with, with medical records and stuff like that. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pause there and see if you have any follow-up questions. Okay. And I keep bringing us back to the banks and the financial institutions because from what I see, all my interviews and talking to people, there's a lot of anger against banking and big institutions. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions. And you're one of the few people that seems to have somewhat of an inside track to what they're doing. So what right now, um, what companies or implementations are closest to being becoming widespread? You know, is, is Ripple a thing or, what, you know, what companies or implementations that are closest right now are having an impact in these worlds? Sure, sure. So I think it's really useful to, you know, try and separate the, the ideology of where Bitcoin originally came from, from actual mass adoption of technology. And for the same reason we saw, for example, with Linux, Linux started with a bunch of people who hated Microsoft. Uh, and 20 years later, you know, the largest users of, of open source software are these large enterprises out here in the Bay Area. In fact, I think Microsoft even joined the Linux Foundation, if I recall, recently last year or so. So um, I think that it, you could have your own personal philosophical views about things or political views, but at the end of the day, if you can't build businesses that are sustainable and generate revenue, uh, then you just won't go much beyond a charity. And there's lots of charity cases that, you know, lots of foundations that exist and whatnot, but they might not have the reach, they might not have the impact. So I, I think if, for the listeners, if you're really trying to make a change of some kind, build a business and build applications that uh, will reach more than, you know, 10 or 20 angry people or whatever whatever viewpoint you have, you, you want to reach beyond those people. Um, so as far as actual uh, companies that are that are doing those uh, projects that are uh, commercially oriented. Uh, the one company you just mentioned, Ripple, they're really focused on cross-border payments um, uh, between uh, a variety of different uh, corridors. They're not necessarily a remittance company. They, they build tools to enable uh, financial institutions to, to move money across borders. Again, I'm not necessarily endorsing any company that we've done projects with. We've, we've actually done projects with, with Ripple. Uh, with Axoni, Symbiant, uh, a variety of others. I'd be happy to, again, follow up with anyone who's interested in knowing all the different partners we've done. Um, and there's, uh, again, everyone's fairly uh, young. Uh, like, for example, Ripple's, I think, uh, they closed the Series B last year. They have roughly about 175 employees. Um, and a number of these guys are still growing, too. So if you guys are obviously <clears throat> listening and, and wanting to, to participate in this ecosystem, um, in addition to you know being your own entrepreneur, there's also companies out in, in the world that have raised capital and looking to hire people. So happy to you know even spout off some names if, if that's something that people want to follow up with me on uh, in terms of connections. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for the offer. I mean, you, you've been very generous so far. Keep going. Oh, <laughs> you want to know all of them, huh? Well, you know, it's funny. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no we don't need to know all of them, but thank you. I'm just acknowledging. Thank you for giving all these sure. resources and offering to talk to people. That's that's great. Yeah, and if you look at the amount of money raised uh, in this space, it's still like when I say this space, I mean blockchain-related companies or even cryptocurrency-related companies. It's still pretty small. Uh, less than a billion dollars was raised altogether last year uh, from all those companies. Uh, even though there was an enormous amount of hype, you know, lots of people talking on TV, magazines, etc. Uh, an enormous amount of uh, 
conferences. I probably went to you know 20 different conferences last year because they, people say, hey, let's talk about blockchain stuff. So um, I don't know what the, the, the price tag or the uh, funding tag will be this year. Um, it, but just to give you people, people comparison, um, you know, the fintech universe itself, um, there was uh, almost, I think it was like 50 billion last year. I'd have to double check the numbers, but uh, you basically had just a few small percentage points that were quote unquote blockchain related. So even though there's a lot of hype, uh, not as not as many checks yet, uh, and primarily because it's it's difficult to find companies and fund companies that have management that have connections to institutions and people who actually build technology. Uh, there's a there's a joke in China <clears throat> that the uh, the companies uh, are okay if they if they recognize that the mountains are high and the emperors fall far away. Like they could try to ignore what what Beijing you know, the the um, the politicians of Beijing want, and, and, and in many ways, the, the Bay Area is kind of the same way. And I think that that's that's misguided. Like just because you might be far away, or just because you think you can ignore regulators, they're still going to still regulate stuff. Uh, that's their job. That's what they have budgets for, and they're not going to disappear. So, I think if you if you if you're looking to join a team, or if you're looking to start a team, um, you really just need to be you know proactive on there. You know, you try to engage with whatever regulator may be uh, involved with your customers. Maybe you're as a technology company, you yourself are not regulated. But the customers that you're trying to sell to are, and if that's the case, then hmm. you need to be really pragmatic in, in that approach. Maybe maybe start working with uh, some attorneys or lawyers who who have connections with uh, various industries or something like that. I like that perspective. Yeah, it makes sense. I I, I think there are a lot of companies, even on the um, well, ones that are going to interact with again banks, large institutions. Uh, regulation is definitely coming. It's there. I, I see the um, you know the blockchain world. Uh, as separate maybe in the very beginning, but it's rapidly merging with reality. And yeah, people can't ignore regula- regulation. It's it's going to come. And if you want to have a voice in it and shape it, you got to talk to the regulators. If you want to try to hide from them, then the sad fact is you have no voice in it and they may do things that you really don't want them to do. So it's definitely good to build bridges there, like you said. So Yeah, just to give you an empirical example of that, we, uh, we have a number of regulators that we work with actively. We've, we've actually partnered, or, uh, we've done several projects with um, uh, in public. I think we've announced uh, three central banks we work with, the Bank of Canada, HKMA in Hong Kong, and uh, MAS in Singapore. And they're all three working on roughly the same thing, which is central bank digital currencies. Like, but number one, being able to understand it. Number two, seeing how they could benefit from it. And number three, how you could actually build this, these types of systems, deploy it, and who, who else uh, could, could see the, the game in terms of transparency and whatnot. So um, we, we need to do that, too, because all of our members, you know, the 80-plus uh, institutions we work with are, are highly regulated by these types of, you know, central banks and, and other types of – we work with a securities regulator in, in Hong Kong as well. Um, so and I don't want to do too much compare and contrast, but just just to give you an idea, three years ago, and, and for for what it's worth, um, this for listeners to understand like how I got into this, I, I joked by accident, and it was totally by accident. Uh, when I was working in China in 2012, I was actually doing some Bitcoin mining just for fun uh, to understand how that worked. And again, the company I work for has nothing at all to do with Bitcoin. We don't do anything with cryptocurrencies. Uh, again, we, we can learn from the lessons from the, the the cryptocurrency world. And you know, try to try to not make those mistakes, especially around governance. But uh, yeah, so I, I started out, you know, interested in, in, in the Bitcoin and the side of the world, um, and seeing how, I guess you could say, uh, unpragmatic uh, many of these companies were that just wanted to ignore regulators, not even regulators, just the, the general general consumer that wants, you know, consumer protections or investor protections. Um, that, that wasn't built; those systems weren't built for that. So. Uh, the point being is, uh, you know, three years ago, <laughs> seeing the evolution of these 
VC-backed companies out in the Bay Area and, and a few other areas that, that raised a bunch of capital. Um, and this didn't see the traction they wanted to. You see that this with payments companies that uh, effectively had, a, like, for example, BitPay had about three rounds of layoffs now. Um, and I'm not trying to single them out for being necessarily the best or the worst. I'm just pointing out that uh, just because there's a lot of excitement around something doesn't necessarily mean to be adoption. And for them, unfortunately, this couldn't generate the revenue they needed to uh, you know, maintain the headcount that they had. So uh, I'm sure that there'll be lots of churn throughout this industry. In fact, at one point, um, thin films, thin film solar companies in the U.S. numbered over, I believe, 100, and now we're down to just a few yeah. uh, because of consolidation and, and mergers and stuff like that. So uh, I'm sure this in, in this world too, even on the cryptocurrency side, assuming it, it survives, um, they'll, they'll have a lot of consolidation as well. So um, it'd be fun to talk again, maybe in a year, and let you know <laughs> at least how both sides of the world are are um, how how have they've evolved. Uh, on the enterprise side, I, I I think there's a lot more revenue to be generated because of the type of customer you're working with these large institutions. Assuming you you could have the sales cycle and the connections you needed with the with those institutions to begin with. Yeah, I mean when you talk about one institution having 900 million in expenses, that's a lot. So I can see that why these um, technologies will be of interest to larger institutions. I mean there's huge amounts of money at stake and huge potential savings. Uh, for sure. Yeah, and, and we should, as a consumer, you will actually, assuming the stuff does get integrated, you, you actually may see some of the, the benefits to that too. Like I was talking about with KOIC, maybe opening up a new account would cost half as much or 75% as much or you know, significantly uh, less money is needed to, to open and maintain accounts. Uh, you'd actually see things settle a little bit faster, especially if it's money transfers across the border. Uh, but again, uh, that's not the world. I, I don't do consumer-facing stuff myself. It's, it's almost all institutional. So I uh, hope that was helpful. And again, <laughs> if you guys if you, yeah. if you needed uh, some more information, happy to uh, take this offline. And uh, you can find my uh, social media stuff. Uh, Up Numbers is my Twitter account, and my website's upnumbers.com. And I usually I usually post about things that I, I see in, in the world that I work in. But again, it's more my personal thoughts. If you're looking for the company I work for, it's um, r3.com. It's the the, <laughs> the alphabet R <laughs> and the number three, mm -hmm. uh, very short URL. Uh, I've had some people try to spell out R and stuff like that. It was, it was kind of funny. So, uh, like anyway. a pirate R? Yeah, 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 ARR3. Yeah, I, I was on stage in Japan <laughs> and somebody was trying to do that. It was, it was really funny. So. That's funny. One last question. Um, no one likes to answer this, but your own personal crystal ball, what do you guess uh, may happen in the next year? or two uh, with both cryptocurrencies and with the uh, the inside-facing institutional type stuff that you are you deal with? Any implementations or rollouts that you think may come out or uh, big changes coming? So on the, um, the cryptocurrency side of things, I think you'll have a, a really nasty shakeout on the ICO world. There's this, this term called initial coin offering, and you've had ten, or tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars raised in the last five months. Actually, I believe it's over 200 million. And it's it's by really unaccountable organizations that, that have zero vesting periods so they're able to go out and spend that money without any any strings attached. And I, I think that uh, as that bubble grows, you'll have a, uh, a lot of uh, fear of missing out, a lot of people trying to do grit rich quick, just like any kind of, you know, bubble. And um, as a result, in a couple of years, once the music stops uh, and people find out that these are unsustainable, you know, nonprofits. In fact, most of these ICOs are structured as nonprofit entities on purpose 
to shield themselves to, from regulatory oversight. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Anyways, you'll have a shakeout. You'll have a lot of people burned, and you'll have the, basically people will, will learn why we have the SEC in the first place or CFTC. Like the SEC was set up in 1933, not because 1933 was the magic year. It was because the 20s you had lots of retail investors and, and people living on fixed incomes that got burned by people selling them you know, sh- shabby, you know, Ponzi scheme types of things, uh, pyramid schemes, all these different types of, of scams that still exist today, but. Uh, at least we have a, a, a rules and regulations around it. They didn't have that before then. So I assume that once that shakeout takes place, you'll have, um, if not more more guidelines or regulations, you'll have that uh, to, to some extent, just people exiting that market because they just have no consumer or, or investor protection. Again, this is my own personal view. I don't want to say that on behalf of anyone else. Um, and I couldn't say which date that will be. I, I don't think it'll be any time in the next week or month. I think it'll be months, if not years, uh, before before that uh, ultimately uh, uh, busts. But I could be wrong on, on terms of time. Um, on terms of the enterprise right. stuff, um, it's also going to take a number of at least months, if not years, to, to really integrate these things because uh, of the uh, not only do you need buy-in from the different uh, business lines within institutions and, and sign off from the compliance teams and regulators and so forth. But you need to you need to work with uh, systems integrators. So you have these large companies like Accenture and uh, uh, Cognizant, which have you know tens of thousands, actually several hundred thousand uh, people. They, their sole t- sole task is to well not the sole task, but one of the big tasks is to p- take take their skilled uh, personnel and take uh, designs or architecture or code or whatever it might be, and then integrate it into existing legacy systems. If if you can't plug into the existing infrastructure, then you're going to be very isolated. You won't have much movement taking place on on a network. And so I think that it's going to take uh, for for anyone that I don't want to single out any guests on on your show or anything, but anyone coming on a on on, on any show or at a fintech event or whatever it might be, saying, "Hey, we're going to launch this thing in production in a week." And they treat it like a social media app. This, this financial market infrastructure is not a social media app. If, if you break it, you go to jail, you get fined because people's people's property is at stake. And going back to that settlement comment I made at the very beginning, you don't want to screw around with the settlement systems uh, and cause uh, you know any anyone from from losing their their savings uh, or their their deed to their house or something like that. So uh, I think as much as people want to be fast and Uber like and you know ask for permission, it's easier to ask for for uh, forgiveness and permission. You know, try to do that. I, I don't think that approach is going to fly on the enterprise side. And so I think everyone's going to be a bit more meticulous, uh, at least in implementation than uh, than what the people on <laughs> fintech events want to get hyped and jazzed about so that's my prediction it won't be it won't be a week or, or a month it's going to take a little while okay well very good i appreciate being on it's important to get these other perspectives that we don't often get um you know so again thank you for all your insight it's it's rare we don't see it very often and i, I appreciate you coming on the podcast Oh, my pleasure, Rich. Uh, happy to help and, and look forward to uh, chatting more in the future. And again, any guest that wants to chat with me, feel free to reach out to me on uh, my website or on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find and happy to talk. So have, have a great day and a great weekend. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.